Well, again, this morning I want to continue our little bit more detailed study of Hebrews 2. We looked at the whole chapter a couple weeks ago and then the first four verses last week. This morning I want to get into uh, the details of verses 5 through 9. You see the title of the sermon in your bulletin, Thy Kingdom Come, taken from the Lord's Prayer, but also I think uh, kind of the major topic, if you will, of these few verses. Excuse me. So let me read these, set the word of God before us, and let's explore its meaning for us this morning together. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So ends again the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. As we come before it, again let me pray for us. Let's pray together. Our great God, our holy Father in heaven, we ask now your blessing as we come before your word. We ask that you would fulfill your very own promise that when your word goes out, it does not return to you empty, but is instead successful in the things for which you send it. May that be true here this morning among us, among all those who hear this word as it goes out. For ourselves, we pray that you would fill us to overflowing with your Holy Spirit so that our eyes might be open and not dark, that we might see the things you would have for us and hear them with open ears as well. Father, we ask that you would make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, so that we might walk in light rather than in darkness, according to the things that you have taught us. Father, all this, we pray once again in the precious, wonderful, superior name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, we just recited it. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, and so on to the end. We say that prayer, we pray that prayer, week after week after week in our worship service. And I hope it's not for you or for me just a simple exercise in memorization or in rote recitation of something that we've learned. I hope it's a true prayer. I hope it is a real prayer, and I hope it's your prayer. Your prayer every week in unison with believers throughout the world and throughout history. And I hope it's a prayer that you make use of in your own private prayer time. Each phrase of that prayer is packed with meaning and can be expanded upon as we spend time privately with the Lord. That's a very profitable thing to do as we spend time privately in prayer with God. Let me give you an example of how 
the phrase before us this morning, thy kingdom come, can be expanded upon the meaning that's inherent in that request, that second petition. Here's how the Westminster Larger Catechism answers the question, what do we pray for in the second petition? Listen to all this. It's remarkable. In the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan. Notice dominion there. We pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed. We're praying, therefore, in part for the destruction of a sinful kingdom. That the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed. The gospel propagated throughout the world. The Jews called. The fullness of the Gentiles brought in. The church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances, purged from corruption, corruption, countenance and maintained by the civil magistrate, that the ordinances of Christ may be purely dispensed and made effectual to the converting of those who are yet in their sins, and the confirming, comforting, and building up of those that are already converted, that Christ would rule in our hearts here, and hasten the time of his second coming, and our reigning with him forever, and that he would be pleased so to exercise the kingdom of his power in all the world as may best conduce to these ends. That's a lot, and they probably could have said more. But do you notice the kingdom language there that's tied to ideas of salvation, of converting hearts to Christ. The second petition, thy kingdom come, has very much to do with the work of the church in bringing others to faith and discipling them in that faith. Making disciples, bringing salvation to the world is part of what we ask for when we ask thy kingdom come. And that agrees with our text this morning. It's interesting to me that the writer of this letter, this sermon letter to the Hebrews, ties the coming of the kingdom of God to the great salvation that he's been writing about. Did you notice that in verse 5? To me, it's one of the more remarkable things about this passage that, frustratingly, many seem to skip over. He makes a very, very (laughs) odd but powerful statement in verse 5. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. What he's saying is, for the last chapter and four verses, what we've been talking about is the world to come. But what else did he call it? Such a great salvation. What has he been speaking of? A world to come that is a great salvation salvation. That great salvation that we're not to neglect is about, as much as anything else, is about the world to come, according to this author. A world that is being made subject to someone who's not an angel, and in fact, in verse 9, is namely Jesus himself, the Son of God. And so I believe that the world to come this kingdom ruled eventually completely by Jesus, is really the focus of verses 5 to 9 and what I want to focus on then this morning. 
and note three things in particular. First of all, to flesh out again the very, very important relationship between the world to come and the great salvation that has been preached and is being preached to the world. Secondly, who is it that rules this world to come? And then third, a very remarkable thing as well, how that rule is accomplished. Just a little hint that we're given in the text this morning. So the relationship between the world to come and salvation and the message of salvation. Who is it that rules the world to come and then how that rule is brought about. So let's talk about the world to come. Again, as much as anything else, salvation by this author is being equated to the coming kingdom, the world that we're expecting. Salvation is, is as much as anything else, about God establishing a new kingdom, or what Isaiah calls in chapter 65, a new heavens and a new earth, our Old Testament reading. Salvation at its fullest brings the kingdom of God to reality, brings it to the reality of our own existence as believers here and now, as the catechism question talks about, making it real in our hearts, but also ultimately that kingdom comes to its full consummation when Christ himself returns. So I think it's a little bit jarring if you're, if you're not really in that mindset to read verse 5 of chapter 2 and see the writer make that connection. What we've been speaking about is the world to come and the great salvation that goes with it. I think it would be a helpful exercise. I think I intend to do this myself. To spend part of the Sabbath day later today reading through chapter 1 and the first four verses of chapter 2 with that thought in mind. How does this tell me about the kingdom to come, the world to come? How, how is that connection made by the author? Read it in that light. He's been speaking about, he says, the world to come. Be curious what your thoughts and insights are. Well, this shouldn't be a surprise to us, though, if we think about it. After all, Jesus himself is known for preaching about the kingdom of God. It's a repeated theme over and over and over again in the Gospels. Go back to our New Testament reading, Matthew 6. Jesus teaches us, first of all, to pray that the kingdom of God would come, but also tells us to seek first. The first thing we should be looking for, the primary desire of our hearts, should be the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. Think about that. The first thing, the first priority. In Luke, he makes a promise to his disciples. Chapter 22, Matthew 26, he he talks only about the the cup. Um, But as he's eating the Last Supper with his disciples, Luke tells us that he, he tells them he will not eat or drink with them until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus anticipates that kingdom. He tells them it's coming and tells, expects them to wait for it. People who follow Jesus are described as those who seek after the kingdom of God. Joseph of Arimathea, the one who provided the tomb that Jesus was buried in, is described in Luke twenty-three fifty-one as a man looking for the kingdom of God. And the implication is he found it when he found Jesus. 
interesting. In Acts, after the resurrection, Jesus appears to the disciples for 40 days, teaching them about what? The kingdom of God. (laughs) What we read in Acts 1. The kingdom of God is central to what God has been promising. He spoke about it at many times and in various ways through the prophets to the fathers. Isaiah is talking about a kingdom, is it not? Ezekiel is talking about a kingdom. The promise to David is of a kingdom ruled by his son. And we can go on and on and on, but that's not how we usually think about salvation. We usually think about it in personal terms. Someone needs to recognize their sin, confess it, seek forgiveness from God, find that forgiveness in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and repent and believe in Him for salvation. That makes us personally free from the wrath of God and we receive a new life now, but also the promise of eternal life. That's usually how we think of salvation in very personal terms. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a very personal issue. It's a very personal decision. But what Scripture is telling us and what this writer is reminding us of is that as much as anything else, salvation is about the world to come and the promise that God has made to bring in the new heavens and the new earth, and to put his son in rule over the whole thing. Nothing accepted. Means we ignore this great salvation and the promise of the world to come at our own great peril, just as the author has been saying to us. How shall we escape if we neglect Such a great salvation. How shall we escape if we neglect recognizing and thinking about the reality of the kingdom to come? The world to come ruled by Christ. means we've got to take this seriously. means we need to understand what that world to come is and what the promise is, who the ruler is, how the rule is achieved, and how life in that world is going to be lived. These are all themes, by the way, of Hebrews. Hopefully, as we go through the book, we're going to see these ideas fleshed out. What does this kingdom look like, and how does our life lived in it look as well? For now, it's important to know that we can't neglect the reality and and the understanding of this world to come. Can't neglect what it means to be a citizen of that kingdom now and how to live in it. Because you either be a citizen of this kingdom, or if you neglect it, exiled from it permanently forever. If you read further in Isaiah to the last chapter, 66, the book concludes, the very last verse says this, and it's a powerful, terrifying statement, an incredible picture. The last verse of Isaiah 66, and they shall go out, and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. What a picture is that? Their worm does not die, their fire is not quenched. Dead, eternally burning bodies that are an abomination, abhorred, by all who see them. It's either that 
or the picture we saw in Isaiah 65. No tears, no crying. Life in abundance with joy and pleasure in Christ. It seems to me to be a pretty easy choice. And yet we want to control our own lives. We don't want to submit to the king. But that's the choice. Join the kingdom by repenting and believing in Jesus as Savior and Lord, or be like those dead bodies, burning forever, the worms in them never dying, an abhorrence to all flesh. Again, I think that's a pretty easy choice. We cannot ignore the reality of that kingdom to come and the reality of what it means for every single person on the face of the earth. It's coming. Who rules the kingdom? Well, Jesus does. And the author here in verses 5 to 9 is again comparing the Son to angels. Again, here's this idea that we've talked about, refuting the idea that had risen up in many parts of the Jewish culture that angels would rule the kingdom to come. That the Messiah, or two Messiahs in some cases, would report to, if you will, the angelic host, or in specific, uh, specifically Michael, the archangel himself. The, the writer here is saying, don't, don't believe that. That's a wrong view of the world to come. It's dangerous. It rejects the truth of God that he has spoken in the past and now through his Son. It's not to angels that God has subjected the world to come, he says then in verse 5. And to prove it, he goes on and quotes in verses 6 to 8 from Psalm 8. Verses 4 to 6. This is a proof text for the author. This is why it is foolish to believe that angels are going to rule the world to come. And he applies the psalm in a somewhat surprising manner, specifically to Jesus himself. When we looked at Psalm 8 in the sermon series on the Psalms, we talked about it as a psalm that glorifies God. I read from it in part this morning in our call to worship. How excellent is your name in all the earth. But then we have this wonderful picture of God giving to mankind great dignity, a little lower than the angels, but authority over all the works of his creation as stewards of that creation, to rule over it and to to govern it. It's a psalm about what God who God is in his own glory, but also it's a psalm about the dignity of of man who he has created in his own image. And that's how the psalmist understood it. That's how uh, readers would have understood it in the Old Testament times as a psalm about mankind. So how does the author apply it to Jesus? Well, he's got at least a couple reasons for doing so. Jesus does it himself. We talked about this as well when we went through the psalm. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. People are crying out, Hosanna to the son of of David, and he's rebuked by the leading authorities, and he quotes from Psalm 8 too, and applies it to himself. This psalm is about me, he says. And then when, as he leaves This earth, prior to ascending to the Father, he commissions his disciples and begins that commission by claiming that all authority has been given to him, which is an allusion, I think, 
to Psalm 8, verse 6. All authority is given to me. Everything has been put in subjection under my feet, is what Jesus is saying. So the author is not off base in applying this psalm to Jesus. And Jesus is king over all. In fact, what I think is going on here, while the psalm is about mankind and the dignity of mankind created a little lower than the angels to govern the world that God has given, what I think the author is doing is something very, very clever and and kind of wonderful. By implication, as he applies this psalm to Jesus, he's saying Jesus is the man. He is the representative man of all mankind who above all other men rules everything completely. So we can see that the, the father cares for his son, the son of man, a term Jesus uses about himself, talks about himself as the son of man. Who is the son of man that you care for him? God cares for his son. He's mindful of him, as we see in verse 6 of chapter 2. He was made for a little while lower than the angels, but he's been crowned with glory and honor, and everything is in subjection to him under his feet. Not one thing is outside the rule of the Son, not even angels, is what the author is basically saying. So if angels submit to the Son, the world to come must be ruled by the Son and not by angels. So he's making a apologetic point, if you will, to the Hebrews of the time, but he's saying something even broader and more magnificent to us. It's the Son who rules. It's the Son who's in charge, not angelic beings. Now he also acknowledges in the latter part of verse 8, we don't see this yet. We don't see everything in subjection to him yet. That subjection, that complete rule will be the reality in the world to come. And so he's pairing these two ideas. Everything is in subjection to the Son, but the world to come, well, it's still to come. (laughs) So this tension exists for us now. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is announced by Christ himself. But we don't yet see the consummation of his rule. It's just another aspect of what others have called the, the already not yet dynamic that's in the New Testament, and that we experience as believers. Jesus makes it very clear, the kingdom is here now, when he teaches his disciples. But we can see clearly that it's not yet fully consummated. That's why the world to come is so important, why it's vital not to neglect the great salvation tied to the world to come. This is our great hope as believers, the great promise of God that finds its roots in Genesis 3 itself, crush the serpent's head. Again, what does the catechism question talk about? Defeating the rule, the kingdom of sin and of Satan. This is our great hope. The world to come is the world as it was meant to be if man had not sinned in the garden and incurred the wrath of God and the just punishment for his sin. This is what creation itself is longing for and hoping for in the resurrection of the sons of God. Romans 8. So how does this world come? What do we do in the meantime while we wait 
for it to come. Well, the author points us to Christ. He gives us hope, and I think he gives us just the beginning of a little bit of instruction for how to live in this kingdom. Well, the hope is Jesus. What does he say in verse 9? We, but we see him. Everything's not in subjection to him yet, but we see him. That's where our focus should be. That's where our attention should be focused upon is the Son himself. Our job is to look to Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith, to see him, to see who he is, to see what he's done, to see the promises already fulfilled in him and know for sure, without a doubt, that the promises yet to be fulfilled are certain to be fulfilled. And what do we see when we look to Jesus? He tells us. We see one who was for a little while made lower than the angels. He was made a man, but now is crowned with glory and honor. Why is he crowned with glory and honor? How did he get the crown of glory and honor? Well, the author tells us again. We see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death. Because of the humiliation he underwent as our Savior. This representative Adam, the new Adam for mankind. So, Jesus isn't crowned with glory and honor. Jesus isn't king because he's got great armories conquering vast territories. He's not king because he wins a political victory. He's not king because of economic domination or by philosophical influence and sway. He's king by the thing that is most contrary to our expectation because he suffered and died. That's what makes him king. That's what gives him honor and glory. Hebrews is going to tell us more about this But we know this because we've read our Bible and because we went through Philippians not that long ago. Jesus came and suffered and died for our salvation, to pay for our sins so that we might receive his perfect obedience in in trade. But he also came to show that he's a king. King of a different kind of kingdom. Kingdom comes not by conquest, but by deeds of love and mercy, as the song says. The greatest deed of love and mercy was the perfect son being the perfect sacrifice for his enemies, for those who hated him and were in rebellion against him, dead in their trespasses and sins. How does he become king? Through suffering and death. So how do we live in this kingdom now while we wait for the world to come? How does that world to come penetrate into the world that we live in today? Well, I think there's only one way. <laughs> We've got to copy our king. In fact, that's what we're called to do, to follow Jesus. Suffering and death, or at least self-sacrificial deeds of love and mercy. The first thing that has to be done to bring this kingdom to fruition in this life, in this world, is to die to ourselves. Which means confessing our sin and seeking forgiveness and life offered by God to you through Jesus' Son. 
You've got to humble yourself. You have to admit your need for Jesus' saving work and then receive it and rest upon it. That's a humbling thing to do. It's contrary to our nature, which is very self-centered and always looking for our best life now, to quote a disgusting book. You can't save yourself. So you have to die to that foolish idea. And having done that, there's a continual dying that goes on to take up our cross. That's not, the image there is not dragging something heavy on our back. The image of taking up a cross is the image of being willing to die over and over and over again. Now for others. Self-sacrificial love for those around us. Putting them before ourselves. In obedience to the command of Christ himself. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting to compare the kingdom of Christ to the solutions offered by the world around us, which are all, I think, inherently selfish. You can look to the left wing politically, to the solutions that the progressives and Democrats offer, and it's all based on selfishness. They appeal to the selfishness of individuals. Vote for me and I'll give you stuff. It's a selfish appeal. But, you know, the right wing does the same thing in a different way. Vote for me and you can get stuff through your own work and through your own perseverance. It's all about getting stuff. It's all about achieving. It's all about winning. It's all about personal success. And Christianity is not a middle ground between two political wings. Christianity is a completely different, we're on a completely different scale. We come from the outside and we come in and say, no, you're wrong. It's not about yourself and what you want. It's about your neighbor and what they need. And so husbands, self-sacrificially love your wives, and wives, self-sacrificially love your husbands. And children, honor and love and obey your parents. And parents, I think one of the primary calls upon parents is to sacrifice themselves for their children. Money, travel, things for the sake of their children, and so on in all our relationships in life. The kingdom of this world, the kingdom that Satan planted when he put that temptation in the hearts of our first parents was to be gods, to worship themselves, to control their own lives. It's a me-first world. But the kingdom of the world to come puts the other first. Worship God and serve others. It's not to angels that God subjected this world to come, but to the Son. This world to come of which the writer has been speaking, this great salvation that we cannot neglect or ignore. Ignore it at your own peril. Because the King is coming, and he's coming soon. Will you be ready? More pertinently, are you ready? Because Jesus is crowned now with honor and glory. And Jesus is coming again to rule and reign over everything. Not one thing is outside his control. The author emphasizes this in verse 8. Nothing is outside his control. And that includes you. That includes me.
Are you willing to be his willing servant, ready to enjoy being an eternal, eternal citizen of his eternal kingdom? That picture that we get in Isaiah 65 and elsewhere. Or are you in rebellion, destined to suffer eternal exile and punishment? Are you a rotting, burning, worm-filled, dead body out on the street, abhorrent to all around you? The writer to Hebrews is just looking us in the face, taking us, it's just like a parent trying to get the attention of their kid, taking their head in their hands, looking them in the face and say, pay attention. See Jesus for who he is. See the kingdom for what it is. And respond wisely. Do not neglect this great salvation and do not neglect the world to come. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do yearn for the kingdom to come. We see the world around us and uh, see the rebellion, see the chaos, see the pointlessness of life. Think of the writer of Ecclesiastes and the wisdom displayed there, the pursuits that he chased after and, and the fruitlessness of them, the pointlessness of all those things that he chased after. Let us chase after and be seekers of your kingdom and its righteousness. Teach us these things. And we pray that you will open our eyes to them and help us understand them more and more deeply as we go through this wonderful letter that you have given to the church and to us, your people, planted deep in our hearts. And we do ask, as always, that it would bear fruit in our lives, that we would walk in darkness or in light rather than in darkness, and bring that light to those around us. May we see the kingdom come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.